0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15. Take out your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Now, by the way, guys, I don't care if you use a paper Bible or if you use an electronic Bible on your phone. It really doesn't. Copy of God's Word that you can reference and that you can look to, that's what's important. And right now in our world, it feels like the most important things that are happening in history are the pandemic and our politics. Doesn't it feel that way? And we're hearing that. This is the most important election in our country's history. Well, I have to tell you what I've told you in the previous weeks. Those may be important things, but of far greater importance in the history of the world is what we have been studying for the last two weeks, and what we're studying for a total of four weeks here at Crosswinds. That is the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is far more impactful than politics and a pandemic ever will be. Last week, we looked at the death of Jesus— Next week, we will look at the resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, is the most exciting sermon in the entire book, and I can't wait to give it to you. This week, we look at something called the burial of Jesus, right between the death and the resurrection, and it's uh, Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. So hopefully by now, you found those verses in your Bible. Stand out of reverence for God's Word follow along with your eyes in your copy of the scriptures as I read this short section about Jesus' burial. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. and Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that has been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie, saw where he was laid. And that ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. Unfortunately, as you look at resources and things that are written, many people gloss over these verses about Jesus' burial, and it's understandable. There's really not much sensational going on in those verses. The death of Jesus, that had a lot of sensational stuff to it. We studied it last week. Darkness over the land for three hours, and when he died, the curtain of the temple torn in half. And then you had the massive earthquake and dead people coming to life. looked like zombie apocalypse at first. It's impressive stuff. The crucifixion, once you understand what it was like from a Roman standpoint, that's engaging. It's almost gory to understand how terrible it was. The resurrection of Jesus, well, that's supernatural. That's miraculous and exciting. We get to that next week. But the burial of Jesus... That sounds sort of pretty mundane, just ordinary. It's like reading a chronology of facts of what happened. Nothing exciting seems to have taken place. But I want you to reframe your thinking on this. I want you to understand that just as God was powerfully at work in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus, and we see that happening in a miraculous way, you're gonna see that God is just as powerfully at work in the very ordinary burial of Jesus. But he's at work with his invisible hands, working behind the scenes, not in front of the scenes. He's working in what is called a providential way. So we're gonna study this morning the miracles of providence and how those things work and take place in our everyday lives. Now, to understand how God works, we need to realize there's actually two ways that you see his hand at work in the world around us. And I've put these in your outline, so we can just jump to the top of your outline. You'll see what I'm talking about. How does God work at, how is God at work in the world? God works miraculously, God interrupts, suspends, or overrules the natural order of things. He injects himself into the actions of the world to change things in a way that cannot be explained by human behaviors or natural processes. That's when God works a miracle. Miracles are, by definition, miraculous, which means they don't happen all the time. But by the way, we've seen miracles in the death of Jesus. We've seen miracles. We're going to see them next week at the resurrection of Jesus. But there's another way that God works. and That's the second point in your outline. God also works providentially. That is, God accomplishes his plans, purposes, promises, and prophecies, not by interrupting the order of nature, but by pulling together the free actions of people, events, and circumstances with meticulous precision in such a way that what happens in the world Is exactly what God purposed and promised would take place. This is what we see in the burial of Jesus. God will accomplish exactly what he plans, exactly what he prophesied, exactly what he promised about what will take place with Jesus, but he'll do it not in a miraculous way, in front of the scenes, he'll do it in a providential way, behind the scene, as he guides people's free choices and free will in their hearts, so they accomplish actually what he has preordained. Now as we've studied the Gospel of Mark. Many of you know that what I've done is, since the Gospel of Mark is so short and terse, I've gone to the other Gospels from time to time, and I like to insert what the other Gospels say was actually taking place, just to give us a fuller understanding and a completer chronology of what was going on in the events that transpired. And as we dive into our study this morning, I want to continue in that trajectory. Because while Mark goes right from the death of Jesus and jumps immediately to the burial of Jesus... If you look at the other gospel writers, we find there's a few other things that took place. In particular, what would happen with the corpse of Jesus once he died and was still on the cross? The Gospel of John tells us how the soldiers treated Jesus' body after he died. And we're going to start there before we get into the Gospel of Mark, what we read this morning. By the way, it'll make the same point that Mark is making in his gospel about God's providential, miraculous work. So in your outline, how is God providentially at work in the miracle of Jesus? Number one, the Roman soldiers providentially fulfilled God's will after Jesus' death. It begins with this, John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Remember where we were? It was roughly about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The month was April. The year was 30 A.D. when Jesus died. Jesus said, It is finished. We studied this last week, which literally means paid in full. That while hanging on the cross during those three hours, he had absorbed all of God the Father's wrath for our sins. Every last drop of it, he absorbed and suffered himself. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He chose to die because his work was done. He had paid for all of our sins. Last week, we learned that nobody took Jesus' life. It's very important to understand. Nothing actually had power over Jesus or was greater than Jesus. In fact, Jesus was still strong to be able to say, it is finished, because on the Roman cross, you died by asphyxiation, as you couldn't breathe. But Jesus could clearly breathe. It's just that he chose to die because his work was done. Last week we saw that in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it clearly tells us this. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." Death by crucifixion typically uh, took two to three days. But Jesus, he chose to die in only six hours. He chose to give up his spirit because it was finished. His work was done. He had drained the cup of God's wrath to the absolute bottom. But while Jesus was dead, The two thieves and murderers who hung on his left and right were not dead. And the Jews wanted everyone on the crosses that day completely dead and gone. This continues in John chapter 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. We start our days at midnight that 's where the new day starts. but for the Jews the actually the new day began at sunset of the end of a day, so the Sabbath day would begin at sunset on Friday because Saturday was their Sabbath and because they didn't want the bodies hanging on the cross on a Sabbath day, and this was a special Sabbath day, it was a high Sabbath day, the Passover Sabbath day, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken so that they might quickly expire. And it's sort of understandable. I mean, you wouldn't want... Guys dying in agony on the cross and hearing their screams crying out while you're trying to have a holiday meal, would you? Sort of ruins the whole holiday. They actually had another reason. They did the reason that came from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, which said in the Old Testament, according to Mosaic law, that um, if somebody was executed for a capital crime, their body was allowed to be hung for one day as an exposure to other people and a warning that they would not do the same thing. But at the end of the day, it had to be taken down. So they are cloaking this all under sort of this mosaic law. We have to have the bodies taken down. Which, by the way, in some ways, is sort of silly to me. They have no problem murdering Jesus out of envy and jealousy. Yet... On the other side, they're worried about ritual purity on the day of the Sabbath. Let's make sure the bodies are taken down. Seems like they've, they've lost what's important here. So how would the Romans hasten someone's death on the cross? They would use something was called a crucifragium. Now, What is that? A crucifragium is essentially a massive mallet with a long handle. And it was used to break the legs. They would typically break the legs right at the femur. Because as we've learned in previous weeks, the way that crucifixion would take someone's life was by asphyxiation. And as the weight of the body hung on the hands, it would collapse the chest so people couldn't breathe. They died a slow and painful death. But when it came to breathing, they could push up with their legs that would release the pressure on their chest, and they'd be able to take a breath of air. But once the Romans wanted to expedite the death on the cross, they used that crucifragium, the massive mallet that would smash the femur and somebody could no longer push up. And death quickly ensued. John continues, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So why do they not break his legs? Because he was dead. Why was he dead? Not because he had to die, but because he had already chosen to die. And then John says this, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, let's just start with the blood and water that came out Jesus' side. I've always preached and I've always been taught that the reason there was a sudden flow of blood and water when a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side, his heart that is, with a spear, because they would do that. They would pierce the heart to make sure someone was dead, because if you have a hole in your heart, you definitely are dead. Sort of a way to guarantee that. I was always told that the blood and water was there because uh, there was... At that point, Jesus had been dead for a while, and the blood platelets and the serum had begun to separate. And that is why blood and water came out separately. Then in my studies this week, I ran across something I hadn't seen before, which may be true, but I think it's worth sharing with you. Apparently, medically, when someone is under extreme stress, it is possible for someone's heart to literally burst and they can die that way. And in that situation, when a heart bursts under extreme stress, what fills the heart sac is blood and lymphatic fluid. If this is true, while we know that Jesus willed himself to die, we've clearly seen that, what may be true is the medical reason for his death is literally a broken heart. That's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus died of a broken heart. It's also interesting because when you go to the Old Testament and you look at prophecy, you find that it seems like that would be absolutely true. In previous weeks, I have brought you to Psalm 69. is one of the Psalms that gives very great details about Jesus' death we've looked at it in previous weeks and if you go to Psalm 69 what does it say in verse 20 which is clearly a section that is talking prophetically about Jesus and his death reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair so while we know that Jesus died because he chose to die medically it seems like The reason behind his death was literally a broken heart. Now, John tells us why it is very important to understand these things. He who has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So John says, the reason that the Roman soldiers treated Jesus' corpse this way, the reason that they did not break any of his bones, the reason they put the spear into his side, was that the scriptures would be fulfilled. They would do exactly what God had declared would take place. Now, remember, these Roman soldiers did what they did all by their own free choice. They did what they did all by their own free will. But they unknowingly and unwittingly fulfilled the scriptures exactly what God had said hundreds of years before would take place with the corpse of Jesus. Not a bone would be broken and his side would be pierced. You say, well, where is that found in the Scriptures? Hundreds of years before. Psalm 34, verse 20, speaking about Jesus, it says this, He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. The Gospel of John, which clearly portrays Jesus as the one true Passover lamb that all the other Passover lambs pointed to, says this, Um, Actually, this says this in Exodus, before we get to the Gospel of John. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb was never to have its bones broken. And John says Jesus is the one true Passover lamb. He doesn't have any of his bones broken. Now before we go too far into this particular topic, I want to take a little, uh, little sideways uh, uh, just discussion. Two weeks ago, when we were talking about Jesus' arrest with at, at the Sanhedrin, remember how we talked about how the Scripture says they put a bag over his head and how they struck him in the face with their fists? Remember that? And I said, and I, they broke his nose. I had somebody who was very gracious, very kind, write to me and says, no, they didn't break Jesus' nose because it says not a bone in his body will be broken. And I know that person really meant very well. But just so you know, the nose is not a bone. What is it? It's cartilage. So it is possible that Jesus' nose was broken because it's cartilage and not a bone. I should just mention that as we continue to go through here. So, what we find is these soldiers have unwittingly, and they didn't even realize it, they fulfilled Scripture. Exactly what God said would take place with Jesus' body. Not a bone would be broken. Also, we find that uh, when it came to this idea of piercing his side, the Roman soldiers also unwittingly fulfilled Scripture. It says that in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, about how they would treat Jesus. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So the point is that the actions of the soldiers upon Jesus' corpse... While they all transpire by their own free choices and their own free will, they are exactly fulfilling scripture about what God had ordained would take place with the body of Jesus. Not a bone would be broken and his side would be pierced. That, my friends, is called the miracle of providence. Just as impressive as Jesus creating food out of nothing just as impressive as Jesus calming a storm at his word is the fact that he can order the events of this world so in people's free choices, they do exactly what God had ordained would take place. That's miraculous, isn't it? Now, let's move to Jesus' burial. Joseph of Arimathea, providentially also fulfilled god's will after jesus's death now we're back to the gospel of mark and when evening had come since it was the day of preparation that is the day before the sabbath once again we're just setting the stage it's three o'clock in the afternoon or after three o'clock i should say the murderers on the crosses next to jesus have now had their femurs broken They are quickly going to expire. Jesus has not had a bone broken, but he has a hole in his side. He's leaking blood, and he's leaking what might be lymphatic fluid or water. And where does it go from here? Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This man's name is Joseph, which, by the way, is a very common name. Jesus' earthly father was also named Joseph. He comes from Arimathea. Where is that? To be honest, we don't know. We have some good guesses as to where it is. It's probably where Samuel, the Old Testament prophet, came from, but we don't know for sure. But while we don't know this man's background, we do know who this man was. It says that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Remember who the Sanhedrin is? That is the Jewish Supreme Court. The highest ruling body in Judaism at that time. 70 men on the Sanhedrin plus the high priest that made 71. He's a really impressive guy. This is the only appearance of Joseph of Marithia in the entire Bible. But, by the way, what he does is so significant that every single gospel writer talks about it. Let me tell you the, the narrative of his storyline that's so important to realize. In previous weeks, we've looked at how Jesus saves people that are far from God. Remember that? The Jewish the murderer and thief who hung on the cross next to Jesus was saved by Jesus. Then also last week, the Gentile centurion who was in charge of pounding the nails into Jesus' hands and feet turned to Jesus and was saved by Jesus. Here we find that Jesus doesn't just save people who are far from God, but we find that Jesus saves people who are religious but are trusting in themselves instead of God. That was Joseph of Arimathea's background. He's a religious guy. He's a high-ranking Jew who's on the Sanhedrin. He's trusting in his traditions. He's trusting in his rituals. He's trusting in all of the things that he does to make himself right with God. But if you look at him, and especially in light of the other four Gospels, you find that he has had a conversion experience. He has gone from trusting in religion, rituals, and tradition to trusting in Jesus, and we're going to see ultimately, Jesus alone. So like the thief on the cross next to Jesus... And like the Gentile centurion who killed Jesus, he also has faith. For instance, let me just mention this. Why Mark says that he's a respected and prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Luke talks about him and says he's a good and righteous man. Matthew says he's a disciple of Jesus. John says he's a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. So he's a true believer is what we have here. But he was one who was a secret believer, as John says. So Joseph of Arimathea has hidden his faith prior to this. But at this point, what does Mark say? He took courage. He decided to display his faith, and he knew it would cost him dearly. Members of the Sanhedrin had just gone to Pilate to ask Pilate to have Jesus' legs broken. They were obviously anti-Jesus. Here comes Joseph of Arimathea to Pilate saying, can I have Jesus' body? I'm not anti-Jesus. I'm respectable, respectful of Jesus. I am pro-Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea is going public with his faith at this point. It'll be costly, He's going to have to pay with his position in the Sanhedrin. He's going to have to pay for this with his position in the community. Why would Joseph of Arimathea want to make sure that he was able to obtain the body of Jesus? This is what you need to know. What typically happened to crucified victims after they died is they were taken off of the cross. They were then thrown into what is known as a town garbage dump called Gehenna. There they were usually eaten and dismembered by dogs. And Joseph of Arimathea, who loves Jesus, who's trusting in Jesus, says, no, that will not happen to Jesus' body at all. I'm going to stop that. I'm going to get his body and save his body that way. The story continues. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. Remember, Pilate's expecting that death on the cross would normally take two to three days. He had just dispatched the soldiers with the crucifragium to break the legs. He would expect that nobody would be dead in only six hours. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, it says, to Joseph. And what would Joseph have done at that point? He would have gone to the site of the crucifixion. He would have had the authority that the, they would have lifted the cross out of the hole in the ground. Joseph would have been there with a hammer to pound the nail left and right and back and forth, to eventually loosen it in the piece of wood to be able to take the nail out of the cross. And then he would have pulled the nail out of Jesus' limp wrists, he would have pulled the nail out of Jesus' limp and lifeless feet. The one who had resurrected or given people life from death was now completely and utterly dead. Joseph would have washed the body, and then we know that they would have taken the body and they would have, he wrapped it with a strips or with a linen cloth. And he would have begun to take that body to where he would bury it, which we'll find in a moment is really his own tomb. Before we go too much further, let me just mention to you how the Jews took care of uh, burial in the ancient world. It's different than what we would do. The Jews did not embalm the body. They did not uh, take anything out of the body. What they would do is they would wrap a body in strips of linen or in linen, and they'd intermingle it with spices. And then they would usually put it into what was a tomb. A tomb was carved into rock. They would carve these into the rock, and they would carve shelves into the side of the tomb. And they'd leave the body there, and they'd let it decay and decompose till it was nothing left but bones. When there was just bones there, those bones were finally taken and put into something called an ossuary, which was taken off the shelf. And then the shelf could be reused for another body. That's typically the way that the Jews dealt with the dead. Joseph of Arimathea we know was a rich man. He can afford his own tomb. Other scriptures tell us this is a brand new tomb It is an unused tomb. It is his own tomb. And he gives it to Jesus to put Jesus' body in there. Now here's the question. Why does he do that? Well, you're going to say it's obvious. He loves Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. He wants a respectful burial of Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus' body thrown in the trash heap, eaten by dogs. That's true. But there's something deeper going on here. Joseph of Arimathea, acting on his own free will and his own free choices, through the miracle of providence, is once again fulfilling Scripture. Exactly what God had declared and decreed hundreds of years beforehand would happen with the death of Jesus, where he would be buried. Look what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked that's hung between the two criminals, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to say hundreds of years beforehand what it would be like when Jesus was buried, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, by his own free will and his own free choices, takes the body of Jesus and puts Jesus in his own tomb, unwittingly and unknowingly filling scripture itself. That, my friends, is the miracle of providence. You see how this works? And there's another miracle, by the way, that works in here. And It says this, Jesus said this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's interesting that Joseph Arimathea is almost rushing things, we'll see. So he can get Jesus in the tomb and the tomb sealed before nightfall on Friday. Why does he have to be in the tomb before nightfall on Friday? When does he have to rise? Sunday morning. In a day, by the way, in Jewish rendering, is any portion of a day. So he needs to be in the tomb for a portion of Friday, he'll be in the tomb for all of Saturday, and a portion of Sunday, Sunday early morning. So he rises in on the third day. Once again, providentially fulfilling scripture and unwittingly and unknowingly doing it. Mark chapter 15, verse 46 continues. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This must have been heart-wrenching for Joseph. Joseph. The one he loved, there limp and lifeless, wrapped in a, in a linen shroud, his cold and lifeless body. He's trying to carry him to his own tomb. Jesus was truly dead weight at that point. And I imagine it'd be so hard for Jesus, for Joseph to carry Jesus. And the interesting part is if you look around at the other gospels. Thankfully, Joseph had help in carrying Jesus. Did you realize that? It takes two people to carry dead weight like this, and there's a second person involved. We read about him in John. John chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. John chapter 3 introduced us to Nicodemus, who was also another member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus by night, and Jesus told him about the importance of being born again. Apparently, Nicodemus also had placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So, we have Joseph of Arimathea, who is a respected member of the Sanhedrin, who is following Christ, taking care of the body of Christ. We have his helper, who is Nicodemus, who John chapter 3 talks about him as the teacher of Israel, who is a member of the Sanhedrin. Also, another highly respected man, you have two men carrying the body. And together, they're fulfilling exactly what God had preordained would take place, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Incidentally, uh, Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. So I told you they would wrap the body in linen with spices around it, so the spices would mask the odor of the decay. 75 pounds is a lot. That is the kind of quantity that was used by a, used for a king. But this is all happening in God's providence. Then we read this, by the way, about the tomb. Now, the, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a tomb, and in the tomb, or in the gar- there was a garden, excuse me, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That was Joseph's tomb. And then we read this. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Josie saw where he was laid. Remember last week, we talked about those women who were standing some distance from the cross but were still faithful to Jesus and following him even when he died on the cross. This is some of those women who are still faithful and following Jesus. Not just when he died on the cross, but they're following from a distance to see where Jesus is going to be buried. They're not going to let Joseph and Nicodemus outdo them in showing love to Jesus. Sure, Nicodemus had 75 pounds of spices to be wrapped around the body of Jesus, but we know from the other Gospels that these women go home and they begin to re- start preparing their own spices that they're going to put on the body of Jesus. And they can't come back till Sunday morning. Sunday morning they show up bright and early hoping they can get those spices on the body of Jesus and boy will they have the surprise of the life of their life. Because he is not there, he is risen. And that is what is our story next week. What can we take away from this week? I have two lessons for you, and they are these. Number one, God is at work in the world through more than just miracles. God is also at work through providence, God achieves his purposes by guiding the free choices of people and the outcome of events. In Jesus' burial, we may not see see God at work supernaturally, like we do in the resurrection and in his death, but we see God at work providentially. Not a bone in his body would be broken, just like he said beforehand. His side would be pierced, just as he declared in the book of Isaiah. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, just as it says in the book of Isaiah. Now, the men who did this were all acting on their own free will. But yet, they were achieving what God had ultimately planned. Here's the point. Nobody can thwart God's will and everyone will ultimately carry out his will, unwittingly and unknowingly. This is especially important to know in our world right now, a world that seems like it's spinning out of control because of our pandemic and because of our politics. Folks, I have to tell you, no matter which way the election ends, whoever is in the office, They are not the most powerful person in the world. God is the most powerful person in the world. And they will do exactly what God has ordained and planned on their own free will, unknowingly and unwittingly. The scriptures tell us that. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So as we're so concerned about an election and who's going to be in the office and what might they do, I want you to know that God is large and in charge and through the miracle of providence, whoever's in the office will achieve what God has planned and God has ordained. It doesn't matter if the person is opposed to Christ like the Roman soldiers or if they're in favor of Christ like Joseph of Arimathea. Both of them carried out God's providential will. Secondly is this. God is not just in the business of saving people far from God. He is also in the business of saving religious people who are trusting in themselves instead of God. The people who were far from God we looked at in previous weeks. (laughs) The murderer who hung on the cross next to Jesus was saved by him. The Gentile centurion who was in charge of his execution was saved by him. But here we see, this week, two people who were religious, who started out life trusting in their traditions and their rituals. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus gave up their traditions, gave up their rituals, and trusted in Jesus alone and were saved by him. How do we know that they gave up their traditions and rituals? They were touching the dead body of Jesus. That made them completely ritually unclean. They would never be able to celebrate the Passover that day. But you know what? They weren't trusting in those rituals and traditions. They were trusting in Jesus. That is why they gave attention to him. Now I have a question for you. What are you trusting this morning? It is so easy to be in church for years and start trusting in your rituals, start trusting in your traditions, and to leave off your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. What happens is over time, it's very easy for us to become religious and start trusting in our traditions instead of our Savior. If the Lord has touched your heart on that this morning and he is convicting you that you're trusting in your religions and your traditions instead of him, just let that gentle rebuke be something that you respond to. And when we close in prayer this morning and say, Jesus, I want to trust in you, you alone, not my religions, not my traditions, and not the way things have always been done. You are the only thing that matters to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to confess that it is so easy, even in a church, to start to become religious instead of trusting in you. For that, we ask that you would forgive us. Jesus, I ask that uh, we would trust in you alone, completely and fully to save us, like Joseph and Nicodemus did even though it was costly for Joseph and and Nicodemus to go public with their faith in Jesus, I pray that you would give us boldness to go public with our faith in Jesus as well. We thank you so much also for your providential will that you are large in charge of all things and that even those who are enemies of you, not just those who are in love with you, also will unwittingly and unknowingly Fulfill the very scriptures that have been written. And we thank you that you are large and in charge, way beyond any political leader will ever be. We ask this in Christ's precious name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.